Blah, 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 blah. Yep, okay, all good. another edition of Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast from a non-Trekkie perspective. I'm Liam Dempsey and I'm joined by my usual co-host, Matt Brothers. Hello, Liam. And we are not joined by our usual other co-host, Paul Wilson-Morris, today. He hasn't got the excuse that football <laughs> is coming home anymore. Certainly, certainly not. But he isn't here. But we shall do without him because we have a very special returning guest, Mr. Chris Hewitt from Empire Magazine. How are you doing, sir? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good, thank you. I'm here to replace uh, replace Paul permanently. This is it. I'm taking over. <laughs> this is it. This proud, is the next generation. Yeah. Sorry, Paul. I'm serving notice. Fired. So, we <laughs> are here to discuss Green Room 2015, film directed by Jeremy Solonier, with mm-hmm. two, two big Star Trek connections. Patrick Stewart and Anton Yelchin are both in this. So this is an episode of Spotlight at the Movies, the strand of our podcast where we analyse a film featuring a member of Star Trek alumni either in front or behind the camera. All right. I can get you guys a solid gig. Matinee tomorrow, doors at one, you guys are on a three. Gentlemen, you're trapped. Things have gone south. It won't end well. You can't keep us here, man. You gotta let us go. We're not keeping you. You're just staying. Shoot who is left. Let him bleed. Get ready to run. Here we go. Why did you pick Green Room, sir? I threw a dart at a dartboard, really, and uh, luckily I hit one with two Star Trek alumni in it. Uh, I, and I picked this movie, I, God, I, I whittled it down to three choices. I can't remember what the third choice was, but I'm pretty sure choice number two was Time After Time with uh, with David Warner and, and obviously directed by Nicholas Mayer as well, which is a tremendously dotty <laughs> film that should be remade. That's the um, uh, Jan the through time, right? Yeah. That's it. It's, it's H.G. Wells has mm. built a time machine and he's built a time machine for real. And then one of his mates turns out to be Jack the Ripper <laughs> and he takes the time machine and he goes forward in time but also moves location as well. Oh, by the way, my ap- apologies. I've got a very husky voice at the moment because I was at a football match on Sunday, at, uh, Saturday rather, at Anfield in Liverpool, and I shouted a lot because I haven't really <laughs> done that for 18 months. You know, all my shouting has been in, at the TV and has been internalised. Yeah. It was, it was honestly, I, I haven't shouted that much and, and sworn that much publicly <laughs> for a long, long time. And it was really cathartic and wonderful, but it's also ripped the lining of my throat. So I... I'm now sounding remarkably sexy, I have to say. So you may have to put the you may have to put the explicit warning on the podcast anyway, just because of my voice. But uh, this is the smooth but, FM uh, nighttime <laughs> drive. I am you coming in your ears. With a cold. 
So uh, I may just end up like this by the end, like Baron Greenback <laughs> from Danger Mouse. But uh, so time after time is demented because he takes the time machine, Jack the Ripper, played by David Warner, takes the time machine and goes from London to San Francisco. And H.G. Wells, played by Malcolm McDowell, goes, I'm not having that. Uh, no, he's absolutely not nicking my time machine. And also he's a serial killer. What? So he goes after him. And then they both fall in love with Mary Steenburgen. And then, of course, that's the movie on which Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen met and fell in love and they had a, a son together. Oh, wow. So it's, That, that uh, you sounds know. remarkably like uh, Sit on the Edge of Forever. <laughs> Back in time, <laughs> fall in love with a woman in the past. Well, in the future, in this case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It all comes back to Trek. Yes. Everything comes back to Trek. So I wanted to choose that one. I wanted to choose something else, which I can't remember uh, off the top of my head. And then I had Green Room on my list as well. And I hadn't even made the, the two Trek connection. I had, you know, because... You obviously think of Patrick Stewart as synonymous with Picard and uh, Anton Yelchin was amazing in those three films as Chekhov, but I don't think of him as Chekhov. He's not the character I think of immediately, whereas, you know, despite the X-Men and Professor X, when I think of Patrick Stewart, I think of Picard. So Mm -hmm. I was thinking of that. And then you were like, no, no, it's two trickies. I was like, this is amazing. This is amazing. We've got to do this film. <laughs> uh, but I love this movie. I think this movie is absolutely tremendous. Amazing. Yeah, no, it's a really, really good pick. I mean, both me and Matt had seen this film before. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're both big fans of it and big fans of uh, Solonier, I would say, as, uh, mm. as well. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a very, very good pick. Um, Chris, I seem to remember last time we spoke to you, we always talk to... Uh, new guests about their Star Trek credentials, about what they have seen, what they haven't seen. I seem to remember you're not kind of a big Trekkie or anything like that. I'd say I'm mid-tier, uh, you know, in that I've, I'm aware of it. I, I, I know <laughs> what it is. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's the Millennium Falcon and lightsabers <laughs> and all that. I, I, I know my stuff. Yeah, so you are perfect no, for the third new co-host for Spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serving notice here and now. Uh, no, I'm 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 mid tier. I'm I wouldn't call myself a a trekker by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, I I love the films in particular. I love Next Gen in particular. But uh, after that, if you started quizzing me on things like Deep Space Nine, like I've seen maybe two episodes of Voyager. I've never seen anything of Enterprise, and so I'm I'm kind of I'm I'm lapsing a little bit. Mm. I'm, a, I'm a lapsed. Trekalik, where where are you up sense. on all the uh, on the new stuff coming out? Are you keeping up with Lower Decks and Picard and Discovery and the rest? I kept up with Picard. Mm-hmm. I lost contact with Discovery midway through season two, but um, you know if it's if it you know comes back all guns blazing, I'm kind of keeping track with it a little bit. I know that mm-hmm. in the distant future now is that is that still the yeah, case? Yeah, future furthest point in the future that the Trek franchise has ever gone, they are now in, although it seems basically the same. <laughs> Slight it's interesting. They've still got fucking chairs. Yeah. They've still got fucking chairs. <laughs> I mean, that is just stupid, isn't it? Like, if you were if you were building the car from scratch, it would look like a car, right? So yeah. why do people still have chairs? Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's this, is my, this is my big problem with... Uh, we get back the into the Liam's rant about future chairs. chairs. <laughs> It's ridiculous. As long as good, good, you know, good lumbar support, then I'm happy with that. But still, do away with chairs, please, folks. So I'm, I, uh, yeah, I watched all of Picard, and I was, I was, I thought it was fairly decent. I think it had some issues. Uh, I am looking forward to season two, though, because I, I do love a bit of Q. I do love a bit of John Delancey. So, uh, so fingers crossed that they can, they can make that one feel a little bit more. Tr- 
tricky than mm. than I think Picard did. I know they were trying to do they were trying to do something that was very very different, but it just felt that you had you had the man, you had Patrick Stewart, and then he just felt really reluctant to let him loose. And everything Apart was about how old he was. And <laughs> really yeah, depressing. I mean, you know, Patrick Stewart is a man who has aged very well. But I would say in, in Picard, it was the first time I looked at him and went, oh, actually, he's now starting to suddenly look a bit a bit old all of a sudden. Like, yeah. a bit, little, little bit dodgery kind mm. of thing. Like, but he, it's funny because even in Green Room, which is only 2015, I still think he looks like really, really young for his age, like, and really like badass and cool, like, in this. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, so- Green Room would have been um, only a couple years before Logan, in which maybe they did kind of up how old and frail he was for where the character is and that, and then kind of bring him back down again. And now maybe he's naturally approaching his, like, Logan I age. thought you made, you made it sound like they actually physically aged him. Somehow, like, put him in there. No him digital the de-aging here. Physical he real aging. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, I seem to remember last time we spoke to you, Chris, that we tasked yep. you with re-watching Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Did this happen? Didn't do it. No, nope. didn't do it. Fine. Didn't fine. do it. Fine. I want to preserve it in my in my head, like like a mosquito preserved in amber. I want to preserve <laughs> the the majesty of the boots and God and Beans. Scotty bumping his head on the Enterprise. That's it. <laughs> That's all I remember it, about it, that it, film. It's monumental stuff. It's monumental stuff. But I know uh, the ship like the back of my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that—that's comedy gold, surely, Chris. <laughs> yeah, just like yeah. Uh, but today we are talking about Green Room, 2015 film, although not actually released like properly in cinemas until May 2016. But it was um, released to like film festivals and stuff in uh, 2015. As I say, the big Star Trek connections are Patrick Stewart and Anton Yelchin. Patrick Stewart, of course, played Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek Next Generation, a number of Star Trek films and Star Trek Picard. And Anton Yelchin played Chekhov in the free Kelvinverse uh, Star Trek films. Uh, now, sadly, uh, deceased, of course, rest in peace. And this was written and directed by Jeremy Saunier, who directed Blue Ruin. Uh, which I really love. I think Blue Ruin is an amazing Mm -hmm. film. And Hold the Dark, uh, which was his kind of Netflix, we're giving an auteur loads of money and you can do whatever you like and then the film is kind of okay. And uh, Mm. then also two episodes of True Detective Season 3, which I actually watched those two episodes and then not the rest of season three was that because of some sort of star trek loyalty that you felt that this guy has directed two star trek actors therefore i need to watch both these episodes of true detective otherwise i'm letting the episode down no it was because true Detective season one was great obviously i'm sure we can all agree on that and then season two i bailed on after like two or three episodes because Mm -hmm. it was not good but then season three obviously was a whole new thing again because that kind of switches up every season had some good actors and lean saunier was directing the first couple and i watched the first two and i remember actually thinking it was an improvement on season two but for some reason i just never finished it i think maybe i was just too burnt by season two i was just like nah 
nah, this is just fooling me that it'll be good. It, it won't be really. I'm, I'm give, giving up. Kind of thing. Like, yeah, I mean, that's got to be one of the biggest kind of like come downs, hasn't it? From like first season where everyone was literally spaffing their nuts all over True Detective at the end of the day, being like, this is the best thing ever. Right. And then yeah. literally. I don't remember doing that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're alone. You're alone. <laughs> You're not doing that. This is a great one shot. Ah! <laughs> but then, don't I mean, quite remember going just there. Went off a cliff, didn't it? After that, at the end of the day, like uh, yeah, it, it's yeah. what I like to call the hero season one effect, where you start off amazingly and then by the end of it, you're just it's just horrible, and that's what happened with True Detective. But it's just stretched out over a, a longer period. It's yeah, a shame. yeah, yeah. Completely, yeah. Heroes season one, still a still a great season of TV with a Star Trek mostly, connection. Mostly, yeah, mostly. mostly yes, with Zachary Quinto. Um, what was he called in that? Silar, uh, right? Silar. Yes. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a very Star Trek name, actually, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. See, that series great. one of Heroes really did manage to make the old like twenty four episode network TV season work for it because it felt like it was unfolding like a comic book, which I guess they were trying to do. And then mm. I don't know whether it was the writer's strike or subsequent, you know, storylines, whatever. But yeah, it did kind of go wrong, didn't it? I think only did up to the end of season two of Heroes. And I've always been intrigued to try and do it all again. But who's got time no, for that? Don't. Matt, there's not yeah. enough. There's not enough time. You haven't fucking watched the <laughs> no. Succession Blu-ray I bought you for Christmas yet. So you're not. I'm holding on to that because I know I'll, I'll devour Christ. it, sir. <laughs> so let's make a pact. I'll watch Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> you can stop by that. Take it back. I take it back. I, cu- I couldn't even. I couldn't even finish the sentence. I couldn't even make that promise once again because uh, I know it's a lie. I'm going to sign myself to lies. But uh, it's interesting. Liam, you said there that uh, when you were introducing Green Room, and you said, and of course Patrick Stewart plays Sean Luke Picard, and I thought for a second you were going to say in Green Room, <laughs> and I thought that you know because that's an interesting way of looking at this film like it's Picard getting his rocks off in the holodeck and assuming the role of this absolutely nasty ultra right-wing murderous git and then at the end of it he just turns it off and goes back sits down in a nice comfortable chair with some lumbar support <laughs> and everything's good and that's a nice way to look He's at the film actually because then you think lunch of his evening. yeah <laughs> this ties into what I was saying about an episode of Lower Decks that I really didn't like from season one where one of the characters goes onto the holodeck and basically becomes an evil villain and murders the entire crew and Uh-oh. they're like oh it's just the holodeck it's fine I'm like no that's <laughs> within, within the holodeck you're imagining like brutally murdering people like you know this is this is no good getting like you know so for all we know there was a big space between Star Trek Next Generation and Picard, this could be what Picard's been up to <laughs> in between. Well, are we, the are we saying that everything years. we've covered in Spock Out the Movies is a holodeck adventure? <laughs> one way or yeah, another. Precisely. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I have two theories. I have two theories. One, one theory, and I've said this in the Empire podcast before, is that every movie made after Darkman is a Darkman sequel, but we just don't know it. <laughs> and the other theory is that every film involving a Star Trek actor is a Star Trek sequel, but we just don't know it. It's, it's taking place in a holodeck. I mean, the clues are there if you look at it. You know, red laces instead of red shirts, and they all get brutally killed within seconds. I mean, it's right there. What, and it's confined to a dark, room. What is the, the holodeck? Because 
everyone's everyone's wearing a secret Darkman mask or whatever. Is that That's what precisely it. Right. Everyone, okay. anyone in any movie at any time could be Dr. Peyton Westlake. That <laughs> is my theory. So don't trust I, anything. I don't believe it because at some point in said movie, he'd snap and go, Give me the fucking pink elephant! Give me the elephant! Give me the fucking elephant! <laughs> God that bless him. God bless he him. wouldn't be able to hold himself back. Julie! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, basic plot of this one is the Eight Rights, who are a young, kind of travelling punk band on tour, find themselves kind of without a gig and basically get one set up for them by this kind of crappy music journalist, which they don't really quite know where they're going, and find themselves at a hardcore skinhead Nazi bar. They perform, (laughs) and they kind of do that and do the gig, but then afterwards they find themselves in the green room with a dead body, and suddenly they're trapped in there, and all the Nazi skinheads are trying to kill them. And it kind of goes from there. It's a sort of kind of assault on precinct thirteen kind of style situation, kind of siege like straw dogs, all those kind mm-hmm. of things. But it yeah. starts very, very differently. It starts quite sedately. Almost when I was watching the opening of this film again today, I was like, Oh, I can't imagine this is what maybe that Wolf Alice Michael Winterbottom film is like. Kind of like they're just kind of bumming around in kind of a van, kind of doing uh, little gigs, and they kind of have an interview with this really crappy music journalist who's like lost his job or whatever. But for a while, you could be fooled into thinking this was a very different movie. It almost has a sort of. Um, 70s kind of movie feel like the, the opening almost a little bit of like two lane black top or something like mm. that and then kind of leads into a completely different direction later on well, yeah i really love it because it really kind of seeds in the 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 rising tension right from the start because you know nothing quite is going well uh, right from the start and it, it's tight as a drum this movie you know it's very economical and it establishes these characters um and conflict right out of the gate mm-hmm. and the band dynamic as well feels really authentic so i think you know when you get to that sort of interview scene you get a real sense of them as a band and as people and just being like tired from being on the road doing shitty gigs and then doing that shitty gig they do in like a diner and it's it's got the kind of like light of like early morning all the time, especially at the beginning when it is early morning, of just that just makes you feel like knackered and when you're running on fumes and they're having to just like siphon gas for the car. And uh, mm. yeah, it just sets things up so quickly because it's within like the first sort of three minutes, you know, you realize they're in trouble uh, uh, on the road. Yeah, I mean, you're a huge gig guy, aren't you, Matt? You're constantly, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously pre-pandemic, but pre-pandemic you were constantly go gigs and this felt like to me like the kind of band that you'd be into oh yeah well i mean it gets you were obsessed with kind of hunting down the next big thing like some band that is currently like nobody's traveling around and then you you went to on their gigs like five years before they had their first album or whatever (laughs) yeah it's like yeah not quite um diner gigs in the afternoon or or, on the pacific northwest of the u.s but that kind of feel of like yeah little underground shows and just scraping along and I think this film really understands like the live experience for as much of it as is portrayed before it all kicks off, you know. And and I think the band mm. as characters as well are very much 
champions of the live experience, you know, sort of keeping them analog and off digital, off websites and stuff. That all adds into the the build up to the siege stuff, you know, when you realize just kind of how isolated they are from everything. Everything's about isolating things at the start, whether it's them as a presence on online, um, you know, where they might not be found if they go missing and, you know, to where they end up playing. Everything kind of just adds one by one this sense of isolation, which all great horror movies do as well in their first act. Mm. I hadn't realized before the social media thing, mainly because I can't grasp it because I'm, I'm addicted to social media. I've, I've tweeted 14 times since we started this alone. <laughs> I, I just I just can't get on board with that at all. But the, it's actually really, I've always thought it was, it was, it spoke to their desire to be seen as completely and utterly authentic, man. Hey, yeah, yeah. You know, we're we're in this. We're not in this for the money. We're not in this for the fame. We're in this for the experience. And they have that that speech, don't they? Because they, they almost talk as a collective in that interview with with Tad, the poor unfortunate Tad who sets the whole thing, the whole the whole ball rolling in motion. And they have that speech about you know how they live for the energy of live music. And once it's over, once it you know dissipates, then that's it, and they move on to the next one. And so it's all about them presenting this united, very authentic front. And then of course later on when the chips are down, they, they all reveal that, you know, they love Prince and Simon Carfunkel and bands <laughs> like that as well. But the, the the social media thing is actually a really elegant way as well of stranding them. I hadn't really realized yeah. before you, you said that and I was thinking about, oh yeah, that's a really, really good point because they, they thought that they can, they can send a tweet or a DM, not that they have a phone necessarily, it's taken away from them, but if they were to get to a phone, very very quickly you could you could yeah that was a band i saw a few years ago at the lexington i remember who said they they weren't quite you know alt rights in in music style but they were very much saying yeah you can't find us anywhere because we just don't do any of that shit and it's kind of the first band i'd really heard to full-on basically say they had no social media presence because a lot of them kind of you know live and die by merch and, and selling stuff at shows and things so you know like selling even even like cassettes of their eps and albums are kind of making a comeback this kind of slow slow trip back to more physical media for music as well but this band whoever it were i can't mm. remember now were very much like um was it Pearl Jam? <laughs> yeah, and now I can't look them up anyway because uh, they don't exist online. So, but it's uh, it, yeah, it made everyone kind of feel, oh, okay, you know, we're here now. We'll we'll, we'll hear them. So, uh, well, I should say that the band is called the Ain't Rights. Matt, you sounded like you said the Alt Rights. Oh then, yes, I'm uh, getting the Nazis the, the mixed very up now. Of what this band is. <laughs> Ain't Rights. That's right. This is true. This is true. But uh, yeah, I think also uh, you made a good, good point there about about the opening few minutes of the movie and leading pretty much right up until the point where they're playing the gig at the venue, um, which I'm not, I'm not sure if it's ever named the venue. Uh, and you have the Nazi punks fuck off riposte to the punks. And then you have a moment where they, they get into their own stuff and they play their own material and suddenly, you know, hey man, music's the great uniter, isn't yeah. it? It unites everybody. You know, these guys are racist, bigoted, skinhead, dickheads but uh, they love this band because they're real and they mean it and just for those few minutes they're you know they are they're, they're one they bond as one and Solnier goes into slow motion during this passage and I think he's not I don't think I mean you can just look at his films to know this but I don't think he's a sentimentalist but I do think he buys into the romance of the road and the romance of being out there and being a band and putting yourself out there and, and living that dream you know hand to mouth dream a lot of bands really love to pursue, almost more than the idea of the music itself or almost more than the idea of, of fame or, or money. 
And I think he, right from the, that moment, right up until the moment where uh, Sam forgets her phone, I think he is aware, obviously as the writer and director of the movie, that this is the last gig they will ever play. This is the last road trip they will ever take as a band together. And he dwells in those little moments, those little bucolic moments of, of beauty, whether it's, you know, someone in a in a car just looking out at the window with the leaves going past or, you know, that opening shot of the, the cornfield, which is really lovely as well. And it's just all these little signifiers and signposts along the way, especially, I don't know, this is my fourth or fifth time watching the film, especially, you know, when you when you revisit the film and you know that everyone everyone is is doomed to some extent. And uh, I think he's I think he's dwelling in that. Yeah, I mean, spoilers mm. for this movie, by the end, Pat Anton Yelchin is very much a solo artist. So... What <laughs> 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 uh, is funny, Chris, you mentioned about that kind of scene where they're kind of united in music. I just thought that was kind of exemplifying the thing that is very much a, 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 real, a real thing, uh, that there's a real history of kind of racist skinheads being really mm-hmm. into music that does not kind of compute with their racist views. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, obviously in the eighties, lots of kind of you know racist were really into ska music, or they were into kind of bands like Madness, who were a very left wing band and stuff like that. And I, I kind of thought it was a bit of that in terms of because they open with the Nazi punks fuck off. It's almost like yeah, they they didn't quite get it because I'd actually kind of forgotten because I saw this movie in the cinema when it came out. Mm. This is my first time since. And I'd forgotten about the murder that is kind of the actual main event that causes everything that happens in the film. Because in my head, it was just that they played Nazi punks fuck off and it got people riled up and then someone started on them in the kind of green room and that is how it started started spiralling. Not that there was an actual kind of murder outside of them and then they kind of became witnesses to that. So watching it again, I was like, "Oh shit!" Actually, they don't. Yeah. The Nazis don't kick off about about that. They kind of just go, "Yeah, love it." Like it's probably because they they can't hear the lyrics. They're worried. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> great punk, awesome. But, well, yeah, um, I, think that, I think that was the power of the band to turn them around because yeah, they are very much like angry at them playing that song and chucking stuff at them. But it doesn't take long, you know. Song two, and they're kind of swung around. And yeah, you they play song two as well. Yeah. And saying about that you know, Jeremy turn any crowd there being into music as well, he, he used to be in a hardcore punk band called No Turn on Fred, according to the, the wiki bit here. And, you know, he said that he wanted the mm. club in this film to have a very motorhead-like atmosphere, but also, mm. you know, he had no intention of financially supporting white nationalist artists. <laughs> Damn straight. I, I, I saw it as a tribute to the scene in Blues Brothers where they have to turn the bar <laughs> yeah. around by singing Rawhide. <laughs> <laughs> It is. It's a classic case, isn't it, of a hostile movie gig crowd <laughs> and being won over just by yeah. instantly won over. Um, I, all he needed uh, was a slow hand clap at the end. Yeah. You know, that just kind of, oh, these ain't like, yes. They're all yes, right. Yes. <laughs> That'd be a good uh, quiz round, you know, five films where <laughs> the bands had to turn it around against a unruly crowd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's probably a few. The commitments, that probably happens in the commitments at some point, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Chris, I'm yeah. interested to hear where you first saw this film. Was it for, uh, I, I don't believe you wrote the review for Empire? No, no, I saw this in the cinema after it came out. And okay. I had missed uh, however many screenings I had missed. And 
I really liked Blue Ruin, and I'd heard really good things about it, and I was fascinated by the just basic plot, because I, I love a siege movie. And I took my wife to see it, and I knew it was going to be violent. I, I, I'd heard it was, it was pretty damn violent. But I didn't realize how violent it was. And my wife's fairly squeamish. And this is a borderline horror film at times. She really doesn't like horror films. And uh, there were there were a couple moments of judgment <laughs> in the movie. But <laughs> I also remember it. I saw it at the Crouch End Picture House. Mm-hmm. And okay. I remember just being incredibly tense, like clutching each other tense, like white knuckles tense. And I think that's one of the reasons why I just absolutely love this movie that it kind of came out of nowhere it's as you say really economical it's it sketches his characters very very quickly sketches the situation very very quickly it feels so utterly real as well in that nobody i mean nobody knows what they're doing not even darcy and uh, it all feels a little bit slapdash and you know but it's it's so incredibly Mm. incredibly tense because of that because you genuinely do not know who is going to live and who is going to die. Yeah, I think that's what makes um, siege movies like this all the more powerful when you get that sense of all sides are kind of winging it a bit. Like the the plan that Macon Blair's character has to sort of sort things out um, to get the cops off their backs actually really smart. And then everything from there just kind of goes wrong and wrong. And it's you get that sense of like every character's kind of operating out of their own self-will to like live or selfishness and everyone's just doing things at the wrong times it snowball effects totally and the whole thing with the violence as well is that there's such a grisly realism to this violence that really makes it land like there's there's a very lack of sort of cinematic punches to it like either whether sound effects or something yeah. like it's just often it happens yeah. in silence like you know Imogen Poots box cutter and the guy up just kind of happens so matter-of-factly that you don't even realize it's happened until you're registering it. And that makes it, in a way, sort of not gratuitous and more uneasy entirely. Even when it's like big stuff like dog attacks or shotgun blasts, it's always kind of in a moment when you might least suspect it or when in another film it might Mm. be built up to a moment like a but this is very sort of anti-cinematic in a way where characters can just jump out of a window and it's like oh fuck that was the wrong thing to do (laughs) You're, you're done for precisely and also because that character reese the uh the joe cole character is the only member of the band who has displayed any aptitude whatsoever i mean he's the guy who chokes out yeah big justin and you think oh god if that guy's gone yeah then all bets are off. And then Daniel comes in. The the deaths is really fascinating because it's never like, it never kind of whittles it down to who you think it could just, you know, the the two, two band members go within like two minutes, like a minute of each other. And then um, Alia Shawkat later on as well. Like there's certain ones who you think might make it all the way through and it's never quite who you suspect. Mm. And even, even with uh, Anton, I mean, because he's the, you know, along with Patrick Stewart, the name of the, of the movie, the name star of the film. We all know Alia Shawkat from from Rest of Development, but the rest of them, I think, were relatively speaking unknown. You know, Callum Turner and, and Joe Cole and you know Mark Webber. You know, we I knew from Scott Pilgrim, but you know, Imogen Poots is is known over here, but I don't think it was known in the states mm. particularly. And that sort of the anonymity of the cast means that Anton Yelchin rises to the top. You think, oh, of course, naturally he's going to survive until the end. You know, maybe he'll die heroically, but I'm pretty sure he's nailed on to survive to the end. And then he gets his arm nearly hacked oh, off God. halfway through and you think, oh, hang on a second, this may not be the Anton Yelchin show after all. And it, it just really keeps you guessing. You know, and even things like the Mark Webber character, Daniel, who's the, uh, the skinhead with a heart of gold, 
you know, who comes in and saves him and he, oh, here's going to be the third act saviour. Oh no, his face has literally been shotgunned off. He's not coming back from that. So how the hell are they going to get out of this? Well, I realised watching it this time, I'd actually forgotten that Joe Cole was in it, probably because I probably started watching Peaky Blinders like after um, <laughs> Green Room Green Room came out, because I know that I kind of devoured like the first three seasons of that in one go or something like that, uh, which of course is the thing he's kind of most famous from. And uh, his character, Reese, like you say, he's the one who kind of displays the most kind of physical kind of dominance like, out of those characters. And I realised watching it this time that I was like, he's the Burt Reynolds of the film in the sense of Deliverance. If we compare this film to Deliverance, which is definitely a comparative <laughs> film, like he is the Burt Reynolds where he seems the most proficient and he's the one who's going to save them. And if you marry in Deliverance, uh, like, you know, it's actually him who first comes out fighting with the bow and arrow and everything like that. And you think, oh, well, they've got if they've got him on side, it's fine. But he gets really badly injured very soon into that film. And then he's kind of mm-hmm. down for the count. You realise, oh, okay, he's not going to save them. And it's a similar thing here. And so essentially, Anton Yelchin becomes the John Voight of the film. And I've got to say, it always freaks me out a little bit that in this, because his arm gets so badly fucked up, in the sense there's a scene where they're trying to negotiate through the door, Anton Yelchin's uh, pat puts his hand out of the door to kind of throw a gun to the uh, Nazis who he's negotiating with. They grab his arm, they pull it out. We do not see what is happening to his arm. We only hear Anton Yelchin's kind of anguish screams, uh, which is really hardcore, about the kind of most visceral pain reaction I've heard since uh, Tim Roth in Reservoir Dogs. Uh, I think, hmm. and they really fuck his arm up, and they pull it back out, and he literally looks like his arms hanging off, or something like that. And hmm. they 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 kind of patch it up as best they can with like fucking duct tape or something. And I always think when it gets to the end of the film, I always go, "Is he actually gonna survive?" Because you could die from that, you could lose enough, but they haven't really patched it up like very well. And from that, I'm like, "Is he just gonna fucking collapse or lose his arm?" Or something like after this, like you know, I, I don't know. It's to me, his mm. kind of survival isn't hundred percent certain. Kind of like at the end of the film, like could just be operating on pure adrenaline. Like kind of like you know, at the end there, yeah, like, in that hand, yeah, he come off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I think he's losing that arm. I reckon. It's I funny. This is yeah. the guitar again. Yeah, <laughs> this is what I really love about Jeremy Saw and his films, especially Blue Ruin as well, and that he takes these kind of somewhat broad like genre conventions but then makes the characters be pretty useless because he's always said Mm -hmm. like with Blue Ruin it's like a revenge thriller focused on a man who has you know no clue what he's doing and he said about this film as well the band members you know throughout this film they're forced to be like the action hero or, or, or stuff and their inadequacies here are understandable because that's you know not who they are so it's characters who would just be normal people, like some bunch of guys in like a punk band probably wouldn't be able to leap into the Arnie action hero role just because they find themselves in that situation. Like we always think we we would do that, but I think his films kind of show what would happen when normal people like that are 
faced with situations like this. And I think that's what makes it so unpredictable and tense in that you get a sense very early on that you are watching kind of essentially normal people struggle through a cinematic kind mm -hmm. of setup. And um, that's where he pulls no punches, which is really, uh, really clever, I find. Yeah, this feels to me like one of those movies. You're absolutely right about the about the arm as well, because again, rewatching this, it just feels like there are liberties taken. He doesn't take many liberties, Solnier, as a director. There's only a couple of movie movie moments in the mm. film, but uh, I think Pat's reaction to the pain and the pain he would suffer after, because you're that that you'd be screaming with pain, you'd just be in agony for hours uh, and yeah there's there's gonna be an infection there's loss of blood they're definitely losing a hand uh it's also one of those movies where i i do wonder sometimes about films that end in this way like what are the cops going to say now it's it's important that the macon blair character gabe is around and is contrite and seems ready to come clean and is appalled by the whole thing and by his part in it so he might be able to set the cops straight in terms of pat and amber's role and everything and, and get the story fairly straight but at the same time they're just offing dudes in cold blood at the end of the movie and you wonder if there isn't going to be a, a spell in the the big house uh for them both as well like 10 15 years with no arm that's that's tough for for old pat <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah I wonder about that too because they're just like sitting around with a pile of dead bodies around them at the end, yeah. and like you said, I'm not sure I trust Macon Blair kind of you know once the cops come along not to change his story at the end of the day. Oh, I like, trust him. Oh, you trust him? You trust Macon? I trust him. Yeah, okay, okay, I trust him. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you know, he's got his red, he's got his red boot laces now. I don't. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. But, um, well, he may see his chance to take take control of the whole organisation. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But yeah, he's, I, I do wonder what's going on. I think whenever anything's set in America, I just go, ah, self-defence. They'll get away with it. But the only problem here <laughs> is, I think, small town where there's clearly a big Nazi-like skinhead contingent. Unlike small town America... Are oh, the cops get a couple on and be like, oh, these guys were our best mates? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what yeah. I'd be worried about. Uh, you know, they might yeah. not kind of take kindly to someone like Alan Yelchin's kind of punk band kind of character, you know. But they can't do any research on him because they're not online, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chris, you were saying you're a big fan of Siege films. What are some of your favourite Siege yeah. movies? I mean, pretty much the the ones you mentioned there, but uh, all, all of John Carpenter's films. Uh, Evil Dead Two is a siege film, which is, you know I've said on other podcasts, including my own. It's the greatest film of all time. Uh, Assaulted Precinct Thirteen, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, you know, all these movies are, are siege movies to an extent. Rio Bravo, of course, great Howard Hawks movie. Uh, I, there's something about a siege movie that I just uh, love. Aliens is a siege movie for for the most part as well, because it's it's the ultimate crucible under which character is examined and forged and weaknesses are exposed and strengths come to the surface. And uh, it's really interesting as a writer as well. It's just it's the ultimate test of how a writer can a <laughs> you know come up with ways for the characters who are trapped inside the location whatever it is police station or in this case a green room to to get out how do you get out how do you and then how do other other people stop them from getting out and also get in and why is that and it's just it's a really really great dramatic device 
I think. Uh, I love Siege movies. And of course, you know, thinking about other Siege movies as well, like George Romero's zombie films are by and large Siege movies. So anything where you get a, a fairly large group of characters, stick them in a location, sometimes if a ticking clock, sometimes don't. Uh, there isn't really one here. Uh, and then just stack the deck against him in big, big ways. And this is one of my favourite examples of it of of the last 10 years. I think it's just masterfully done. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I really like Siege films as well. Just that kind of concept always is really exciting and uh, thrilling. I mean, apparently Sonya has said this was inspired by Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs, uh, which is probably my favourite Siege movie. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of my favourite films as, as well, full stop. And uh, I David Warner again? Yeah, yeah, David Warner again um, in that movie. And I think that gets it kind of so right in terms of the, the Siege element, because it obviously takes a long time, Straw Dogs, for it to get to the siege part it's almost kind of like an afterthought but when it comes yeah is you know all that drippy tension throughout the film kind of pays off okay you've had your fun i'll give you one more chance and if you don't clear out now there'll be real trouble this is david sumner all his life he's been running away turning his back on trouble involvement and confrontation until now he took his wife and fled to an english country town he thought he could find peace and refuge instead he found that a man can't hide forever i will not allow violence against this house sam peckinpah who uncaged the wild bunch now unleashes dustin hoffman in straw dogs rated r under 17 not admitted without parent i read a story about patrick stewart reading the script for this film for the first time and he said he found it so terrifying that afterwards he kind of locked all his doors and windows like turned his security (laughs) system on and poured himself a scotch and i just totally felt that i was like yeah that's the feeling like straw dogs i think gives to you when you first like see it because that really feels like that it gets that kind of in the middle of nowhere vibe where like literally no one's coming to save you. It's literally, there's no law where this is. And this has a similar feel where it just feels like it's so kind of in the middle of nowhere America that you're not going to, it's surrounded by forest. Like no one's just going to randomly turn up and be like, oh, we're here to save the day and stop this happening. Really yeah. do feel like they're alone in that situation it is a really visceral scary film because like you say the characters Mm. act like normal people you know they always do stay just these kind of kids who are in a punk band they feel a little feral at times but they are essentially just those kids they seem realistic to that but also the bad guys are normal people as well like i mean not normal in terms of their kind of all right scumbags but they're normal in terms of they don't act like kind of arch master villains like even darcy patrick stewart's character who comes the closest to being a sort of hollywood villain still essentially yeah. really by the end he's revealed to be as kind of inept as all of them he just thinks that he's amazing because he's the leader of the pack when actually comes the ending and he's kind of, they they kind of like come across him because at the end they try and basically frame them, make it look like they've kind of trespassed on their property to give them an excuse to kind of kill them. 
and they kind of find Patrick Stewart in the middle of doing this kind of framer. And it's actually a really funny moment where they come across him and he kind of just appears and he looks really caught out in terms of like, just like, oh, uh, yeah. But yeah, and that's yeah. really funny. And then at the end, he does this thing where they've got guns on him and everyone, all of the bad guys are dead apart from Patrick Stewart. And he literally just ups and turns around and starts walking off. And he pulls out a gun. And I genuinely think he believes these kids haven't got the balls to kill me at the end of the day. They're not gonna they're not gonna kill me. I'm gonna get the drop on them. I will just start walking, walking back. They're not gonna do it. I'll turn around, blow them both away. I genuinely think he seems to believe that that's what's gonna happen. And it's just like I, no, I, mate. I, I, I don't know if he oh, I think it's more of a desperate last gamble really it's just as the gambit of a dying man but i think it's really interesting about that we're talking about you know age and you know he's now 81 so he would have been 2015 probably filmed 2014 so he would have been in the 70s the early 70s when he when he filmed this and he, you're absolutely right he doesn't feel like a guy in his 70s but in that moment he does because he can't run away all he can do is walk mm. And I think he's trying to take it by surprise as well, which is literally, okay, they're clearly going to kill me. I'm going to just walk in this direction and see how far I can get. And I think that's basically what his his strategy is in that moment. And this is the whole thing about the movie. It's, it's, a, it's a movie that is born, everybody is desperately improvising. And Darcy comes on the, on the scene and... He's calm and he's methodical and he clearly has a, a you know a bigger brain than most of the goons under his control, which isn't saying much. But actually, he escalates it so unnecessarily, it's ridiculous. Like he comes in. I'm not saying it's ridiculous in terms of plot. I love you know I love where it goes in terms of the, the film, but uh, you know, as a character choice, what he does is uh, is extraordinary because he comes into a situation that could be fairly easily contained, and Gabe is trying to contain it and you get the sense that you know even if they put a few heck hundred extra bucks in the alt-right I've done myself the alt-right's <laughs> hand there are too many there are too, there's alt-rights there's ain't-rights if they put a few hundred extra bucks in the ain't-rights hand and you know you turn the other cheek turn a blind eye I couldn't even name this place if you if you ask me I don't know anyone's names we'll move on with our lives and chalk it up to life experience there's a possibility that they might have taken that offer and off they off they go but he immediately goes right so what have they done okay who have they who have they seen who have they done and okay right so well there's only one answer we're gonna have to kill them all and frame it and make it look like we you know they were trespassing the property that's that's the logical conclusion that's what i've come up with uh and that's just such a flawed plan and he so doggedly sticks to it as well that it just uh, it's, it proves to be everyone's undoing. Those kind See, of plans uh, where it needs to like be seen through so much and then more and more of his people are like going in and getting killed and at a certain point you either have to like, you know, have humility and abandon it or be like, well, no, fuck this. I'm seeing it through no matter how many people it costs yeah. me. And yeah, my two cents on the end bit, I think I think he is just sticking to that prideful way with his decision to walk away because, I mean, mm. can you imagine if he just turned and ran like it was the Princess Bride or something? It's just like, and <laughs> run away. Um, so him just being like, I'm just going to walk off with my head held high, see how far I get before they blow me away. And uh, yeah, not far enough. He is trying to kill him as well, in fairness. Yeah. So he, do, he does have the gun. He is going, okay, I'm going to walk 10 paces, then turn. Maybe he's just been very old-fashioned. This is how we did it back in my day. We used to do the duels. <laughs> 10 paces, turn and fire. 
Uh, I think he knows but, as well that the guy next to him will be the first one to get hit, and yes. that'll buy him some time, maybe to walk a little bit and turn. But then, yeah, there's yeah. two of them, so they get yeah, him in the leg first. That. I think there's a belief that uh, I genuinely think there's a belief that they won't shoot him in the back. I think he reasons these kids like you know <laughs> they're not like pure stone cold killers like me. At the end of the day, like you know, I think there's a weird belief that maybe they won't do that, but. What I was going to say about him escalating the situation was that, of course, I think a, a big turning point for the film is that as soon as Anton Yelchin's Pat sees what's happened, he runs out of the room as soon as he's seen a murder go down and immediately attempts to contact the police via his mobile phone. And that's when they leap on him and stop him. And I kind of think that the reasons for that in terms of script writing are twofold. I think it's to up the stakes immediately in terms of go well obviously they're gonna grab him because he's trying to contact the police but also to show the audience that his character is a good person like his character is a good man he wants immediately he does the right thing and contacts the authorities mm. like he, he wants immediately for justice to be done rather than i think if there was more of a negotiation like no one did that and they were like hey man like you know just give us some money i think that's I think also that's what puts the um, the backs up of the Nazi scares because they are just immediately like, oh, well, he's done that, so we don't trust these kids not to rat us out because that was his immediate reaction. I think if they just gone like, oh shit, sorry, and like backed out and just immediately went, hey, we ain't seen nothing, we we've got no interest kind of thing, mm-hmm. like we we don't give a fuck, you guys do what you want, maybe, maybe there could have been a way out of it. Because do we actually believe at any point those guys, because there's lots of moments where they kind of act like they will let them go if they do a conflict. Do we actually believe once that mm. happens that at any point well, they're ever going to let those kids go? Well, I think it's like, like you say, if it had been any other member of the band that had gone in and seen it, I think any one of those yeah. other three characters would have been the ones to just back away. But by making it Anton, that makes us, yeah, like you say, realise what kind of guy he is. And I think that's obviously a deliberate choice to get them in that situation. And yeah, I think once the Nazis know they've got, you know, they got up against the wall, I don't think they have a plan to kind of let them out after that because once yeah it's all escalation isn't it like you know witnessing a murder that they had nothing to do with is one thing but you know once they've broken that guy's arm and slit him up and stuff it's like uh, okay this has gone too far now to let them out yeah, yeah. there's there's, yeah. there's a, about 14 points in the return in this <laughs> yeah film. there really is it does feel like just the stakes just keep getting up to put you go like oh well, maybe they could get out of it now oh no now it's too well, late that's, that's the thing Anton keeps keeps trying you know when he's trying to work out the best way to hand the gun through the door everything he's doing up until he gets his arm slashed is of that vain belief that he can still get them out of it and I think we all kind of know at that point in our the pit of our stomachs that something is gonna go down and something's afoot and it's you know that great moment when that door is opening and Imogen Poots is looking through the little grate and she can see the guy the second too soon from that point on, I think, you know, Anton knows, okay, <laughs> we're in trouble. I, I do wonder, though, if if Gabe had been allowed to take care of everything himself, then, well, obviously it'd be a much shorter movie, I think. Yes, uh, yeah. But he does, he does, I think, subtly all the way through the movie, plant the seeds that Gabe is obviously a skinhead and a neo-Nazi, but is not as bad as the others and does have something resembling a conscience yeah yeah i mean it's one of those difficult ones isn't it where it's kind of like does he have a 
conscience or is he just not got the stomach for what they're actually now doing? Like almost like he was like, hey guys, I was fine with the racism, but this is a step too far. Like, yeah, it turns out like he just not like once they get into car murder and stuff like that. They they say he used to do like the leafleting for them. He was like, look, I was just handing out little bits of kind of hate speech and stuff like that. But this murdering—it's just the admin Nazi. Too much. Yeah, exactly. He's the admin Nazi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm your I've social got a media manager. <laughs> for you guys um, yeah. throughout the film. So, first of all, crap music journalist at the start who sets up the gig for them through his cousin, do you think he knows what he's setting them up for when he sends that place? Because I thought when he was telling him, he does kind of say, hey, uh, you know, I've got a gig for you, but it is at this bar that is a bit of a... He, he kind of plays it down a little. He's like, oh, it's a sort of skin egg bar, so be careful kind of thing. But to me, I go, his cousin works there. He must know, for these guys are fucking psychos. He doesn't... He plays it down a little bit. Do we think he's sending them into the lion's den deliberately? No. Okay. I, that, that thought has occurred to me in the past, but no, I don't think he does. Because what happens is such a convergence of unlikely coincidences mm. that I think it would be unlikely. He's not. He's not. I don't think he's some sinister Blofeld figure pulling the strings. Yeah. Going on oh, now, this guy will go back into the green room for his phone and find the dead body. I don't think it's quite like that. If they had gone there and then found themselves instantly surrounded by people who wanted to uh, erase that uncomfortable pizza restaurant lunch gig from from the memory uh, forever, then yeah, maybe. I think Tad might be in on it. But no, I think he's just. Uh, I think he's just a guy. Also, I think that his connection to Daniel the Mark Webber character means that he is innocent of any blame in this because clearly Daniel is a little bit like Gabe. He's, uh, I don't think he's fully committed to the lifestyle. I think he's turning his back on it. He's arranged, you know, he's in love with Emily, the, the girl that, you know, is, is killed in the green room. And you know, they're making plans to leave that night, actually, uh, as a matter of fact. So I think even if he knows that his cousin works there, I don't think that necessarily means that he knows what sort of, stuff he's caught up in and what sort of stuff to get up to in there so i think tad is just a he's a bit like me he's a hapless journalist i've sent more than a few actors to their deaths accidentally (laughs) i will say okay i won't name any names for obvious reasons for legal reasons i can't name them tad's yeah he's not like the harbinger you know he's not he's not knowingly sending people into like a vampire den for them to be fed on i think he i think he just realizes you know oh yeah these are bad people but you'll have a gig and get through it and yeah like i said like chris says i don't think anyone's anticipating these turns of events because i think he's a bit apprehensive about setting up the gig just because he you know maybe he's embarrassed that you know he's family members with nazis and stuff but he's he's (laughs) thinking you know this band are desperate and they can handle it and and you get the sense that you know this gig night that is on at this venue happens all the time because up until stuff goes goes south you know the uh the big guy big justin isn't it he's just like all right here's here's your fee and you gotta make sure the fire route is clear like they're doing things um, by the book like they're horrible nazis but they're they're it's run really efficiently (laughs) you've got to admire the work yeah (laughs) Uh, i I tell you why i tell you why i always suspected him and i did the first time and i did this time is because of Reese attacking him in the terms of like obviously early on in the film Reese kind of like attacks Tad and kind of like slams him into a wall and he does apologize for it 
uh, later on in a kind of half-hearted way. And I always thought, oh, this is his way of getting them back in terms of, like, he knows that something... These guys ain't going to blend well with the... Kind you mean you're turning this bar. into a revenge uh, story? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, you know... And just even the moment, even the moment Reese actually kind of half up, he goes, hey, sorry, I destroyed you earlier, man, or whatever. And Taz's like, yeah, it's fine. Like, and like you know, and I think... You will, like, you'll get yours. You'll it later. You'll be sorry. <laughs> exactly. That's why I've always, I've always suspected him. I do, you, know, do you think more... it's the choice that the last, one of the last shots is Tad just innocently hoovering his apartment? Is that you going, there he is going, do, 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 I win, suckers, yeah, or... Yeah. No, it's, it's him, it's him destroying all the evidence hoovering up any DNA that they were yeah. in his apartment in the first place oh my yeah. god maybe Tad is the mastermind behind all this besides uh, he is going to have a career making story out of this I yeah. was the last guy to interview the Ain't Rights not only was I the last guy to interview the Ain't Rights I kind of sent them to their deaths anywho uh, <laughs> that, you know you would send that into Rolling Shit. Stone you would pitch that to Rolling Stone you'd pitch it to Mojo and you'd, you'd make well I think Mojo pay millions for a story these days that's, so that's yeah, it so we're saying money. Tad's walking off like Kaiser Soze at the end of this like my yes. plan <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely there you go. he's going to write a book there's going to be a book in this yeah uh, there you go. absolutely if you're suggesting that he has such you know he sent him off to this horrible shitty venue with such certainty that something bad is going to happen to him. That would imply that he's done it before. Yes. Well, maybe he has. Maybe he has. (laughs) Maybe there's a load of bodies fucking buried underneath that club. We don't know. Yeah. This is what happens to people who don't make the last half of the X Factor. They they (laughs) end up in this venue and they're never heard of again. he has a bad interview... He literally is like, right, lads, I don't worry, I'll set up a gig for you. Send you off to death. It's going to be great. Go straight You're down, done, mate. mate. Yeah, well, yeah, that exactly. would have been a different type of film, wouldn't it? If when they break down into that basement bit, there's just all these other bands down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all in cold storage. It's just yeah. like, oh, this was. Look, when he picked up the car set list, he should, it should have been like the set list from last week. And he's like, hey, I recognize these guys. And then he finds their bodies down in the basement. Like, you know, it's like, they, they haven't released a new single for months like wait a minute this what are you doing here Darcy Baca is uh, he's a bad guy he's a really bad guy and I have to be honest and say that I think it was that aspect which seduced me He's so good in this movie, though, Patrick Stewart, uh, yeah. or, or Sir Patrick Stewart, as he likes me to call him. And the really chilly moment, of course, is that moment when Solnier keeps the camera inside the green room and Darcy stands outside the door. Mm. We don't see him. I think Stewart monologue. was actually on set on the day. Uh, and you can just, he goes, if I speak at this level, can you hear me? And it, uh, yeah, Well, just about, mate, just about. You, it wouldn't kill you to raise your voice a little bit. And that is such a wonderful way of of shifting the balance you know keeping their heroes off balance and and keeping even though we've seen him and we know what it looks like we know what he's capable of but keeping our villain in the darkness and in the shadows is such a a beautiful moment yeah no i love that scene and actually uh, what happened is they filmed both sides in reality they filmed both sides um but they just sonia knew that he would just use mostly Yelchin stuff, but they filmed the total both sides. And actually, in the trailer, they use some of Pichu's side. In the trailer, gotcha. you've got you've got the line where he says, "Things have gone south. It won't end well." 
which is an amazing line and like a great line for a trailer and he's standing by the door and kind of delivers that line so they obviously use the outtake for that but I love his voice. I love the voice that he used, that kind of sinister, low voice. So like, he, like you say, it's perfect for that talking through the door, going, can you hear me at this level? It's just, yeah, he's for great. And he rocks that goatee beard as well. And yeah, the way he does downplay it all, because it is quite a pulpy role, you know, like King Nazi, essentially, of, of these people. Um, <laughs> King Nazi! But he, King Nazi! But he plays it, yeah, so normally, like, this is all business to him, and that makes it all the more scarier, because, you know, he, he doesn't have any scenes where, like, he's outwardly, like, racist or, like, you know, horrible to someone or, like, any act of violence, really, apart from towards the end. He's just kind of all in control um and yeah. that makes you know the implication of stuff that he has must have done in his life or in his past because of the nature of who and what he is is all the more scary so you just kind of read into so much of that and i think you know it, it relies on quite a lot of our perception of patrick stewart as as an actor and a man as well to be like oh wow who is this alt version literally an alt version of of patrick stewart who who in this world you know has been a nazi all his life probably yeah, the alt not right version. <laughs> yeah. um, Patrick Stewart used the N word in one scene, so I, I think we could be sure that he is. A oh racist. yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I missed that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. he does oh. it in this scene where he gives the uh, red bootlaces to make on Blair, and he okay. says you've got oh, to yes, stay yes. away from kind of drugs, but he refers to them in a, a derogatory manner. All right, screw that guy. Screw that guy. <laughs> You were on his side until then. Until you were, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was. You were, you were turning me around, and I was like, Patrick Stewart is a nice guy. He's a very reasonable man, and I can't divorce I can him from the character. No, what? No, screw that guy. He's um, done. Another question: Desert yes. Island Band, Chris. So, remind me of the concept of a Desert Island Band. Is it so a, a band film, made entirely of sand? What, what, what's going no, on? No, so in the movie, at uh, a certain yeah. point, when they're all revving themselves up to kind of go out and fight and Joe Cole says now we won't all live but maybe we won't all die they all give mm -hmm. their desert island bands as a way of I presume to kind of alleviate the situation mm -hmm. and one says Simon and Garfunkel uh, I think it's um, yeah. Alia Shawcat who says that uh, one says Prince yeah. uh, one says the Misfits yeah. Imogen Poots yes. says Madonna and Slayer we don't get to hear Yelchins, but lots of people yes. believe it's Credence Clearwater Revival. And so you yes. can obviously have a solo artist there because Prince is picked. Who would be your Desert yes. Island band? Well, presumably you'd have a, a band where you'd have the, well, what's it, the new generation, he'd have the, his backing band with him. But I just wanted to dig into the concept of what a Desert Island band is. So is it a, are you stranded on a desert island and then you happen to be stranded on the island with your favorite band is that and then they, I mean, no, I they're playing not. gigs for you is that <laughs> is, you have I, access I, to whoever you pick's entire discography and that becomes uh, your yeah, desert island yeah, discography desert island di we're talking desert island discs i don't think you're gonna roll up on the kind of you know because if you pick someone see that like, wasn't clear yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you pick something that wasn't like clear. oasis or something you're washed up on the desert island, you're not gonna have like liam gallagher kicking off 
Desert Iron Discs, I'm saying. So you've got the full discography of the of the band or so eyes. That's what I am assuming. See, that's not the that's not the I, see, I, I I want I want to be on a desert island with these guys. I want to have I want to have a stage. I want them to play for me every night. <laughs> and I want them to play the set list that I have perfected for them. That's what I want to do. I don't want to just have their records physically with me. I want them. I want to be on a plane with them. I want that plane to go down. <laughs> and, you know, I want everyone who was on the plane to be okay. That's very, very important. Just like, you know, I just happen to be getting on a plane with these guys. We crash in the Pacific and we swim to this desert mm. island. And then their, their equipment still works magically and they set themselves up. And so you it know, would we're, be we're good polyphonic spree. So there's enough of them to eat. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you'd have a couple of them on a spit. This spin on the concept, Chris, do you think. <laughs> that um, Imogen Poots was specifically thinking of the film Swept Away when she chose Madonna to be on her Desert Island. (laughs) (laughs) And also, would it change your answer between the if it is the actual band are going to spend time with you on this desert island or you're just going to have their discography? Right, okay. It probably would because uh, my favourite band is R.E.M. So I would probably have, if you're talking about the actual band on an actual desert island playing for me every day, 7pm. Do they have a warm-up band? Can I just, um, can I get into that? Do we no, have support? Just get, they don't have the support. They, they literally, it's just them. And also, What sort of half-assed organisation is this? That it's not, uh, I would say it's not guaranteed that they are going to be playing gigs for you every day. I would say that's down to them. You'll have to <laughs> well, negotiate. With whatever band this is to play gigs. Oh, maybe they want to for, you know, they live for the passion of music, but they might be concentrating on trying to build a raft or something. You might not get a choice. No, they have to play for me every night from, from, (laughs) I I want a sort of Bruce Springsteen, Paul McCartney style (laughs) set list. I don't want any of this two hour bollocks. I want them to play for three hours and I want them to, even, even though it's just me and it's just them and they're playing a gig for me every single night, I want them to, when they get to 10 o'clock, they have to pretend to leave the stage and then I have to applaud very loudly for them to come back on and do an encore. And by this point, they're, you know, they, they hate me. They want to kill me. And they probably will six or seven months into it. But, you know, I've had six or seven months of, of REM, so playing live and they split think up. I it'll take that long. You think well, they'd kill me quicker? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. But I, I, just, I just want... I want to have on my phone, you know, um, Songkick or Bands in Town, those apps. Yeah. I just want to be able to open it up and see who's playing today in the desert island. And it just goes R.E.M., 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 R.E.M. That's what I want. <laughs> and I, I kind of do want it to be R.E.M. because they have split up and because, crucially, they're all still alive. The other desert island band I would I would have, it's very cliche to say this, but we would be the Beatles. If this desert island was somehow magical desert island, like in Lost, and then you could bring John and George back, then you know I'd be I'd be okay with that as well. It is a magical desert island. You can bring people oh. back from the dead. Uh, I can't say how happy they're going to be about being back from the dead, but like you can, you can do that. I mean, with REM, <laughs> they've split. They've split up. So I mean, at the yeah. end of the day. Like again, I don't think. Don't you think they'll just be kind of arguing all the time, like rather? <laughs> no, before. no, no. They, they they didn't split up. They there wasn't. It was an amicable split. They oh, was they, it? yeah. They ten years ago this year, uh, ten years ago this. In fact, this month, pretty much, they decided to just go their separate ways. They were like, we are oh. done. We are done, and we're never going to get back together again. We're never going to play music together again as REM. And they've been very, very true to that word until they get on a plane with me, go down the Pacific. <laughs> We swim to a desert <laughs> island, and then, lo and behold, lads, yeah. <laughs> the reunion gig begins. Are you going to try and yeah. wiggle your way into the band, say, guys, perhaps a fourth member? 
and I can, I can be, play with you. They would need a drummer, in fairness. But in this scenario, uh, I think their original drummer, Bill Berry, is yeah. also on the plane with them. Maybe they're flying somewhere. They're going to be indoctrinated into some sort of, you know, they're going to be uh, another Hall of Fame, British Hall of Fame, whatever. And, you know, then the plane goes down. So from the from London Heathrow, they take off. We fly over the Pacific, which is a natural flight path. And then we go down the Pacific. And then uh, the first two or three weeks is dedicated to me making them rehearse. Like just endlessly rehearse because they're a bit rusty. <laughs> they're a bit rusty. They're a bit rusty. Is this your favourite band? Like you don't think they'd be able to just pick I, up the... Oh, after 10 years. Oh, Liam, it's that? 10 years. They haven't played together for 10 years. Bill Berry quit the band in 1996 or 1997. He's a farmer these days. He doesn't do that much drumming. He has to get back at the swing of things. They have a back catalogue of around 200 songs. They have to learn all of them because uh, they never gonna, know yeah, what set list I'm going to present. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to mix it up. I don't want to play the same set list every night. I want to mix it up. I want to have some deep cuts. I want to hear something from Chronic Town or from, from Document. I don't want to hear something from Automatic for the People every single night. What am I? Radio <laughs> 1? Honestly. I mean, will you make them sing Shiny Happy People? That's the question. Because they're yes. definitely going to eat yes. you down. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely would. Okay, it's a very comprehensive answer, uh, Chris. <laughs> What's yours? What's yours? Uh, on mine, okay, so mine would be David Bowie for the Discord. David Bowie? Yeah. Um, I think he'd be a pretty cool person to hang out with as well. It says I wasn't thinking about it of them actually existing on the island uh, with me, but certainly in the terms of the discography, it would be Bowie. Um, <laughs> in terms of band to actually be there, and hang out with maybe mm-hmm. I'd do the Beatles as well, just because that would be pretty fascinating. I if, if I can like pick the era that I'm pulling them out from, maybe pick them out from their kind of really chilled out era where they're just doing lots of meditating or something like that. So it's just going to be pretty chill, apart from when they're kind of performing uh, live for me. So I think that's what I'd go for. Matt, what about you? Matt? It would get. I cannot just top it would, these it would... answers here. I think I think it would be discography wise either Queen. Or British Sea Power, band I really love. Uh, I know you love as well, Liam. Now go by the name Just Sea Power. They've got a great eclectic discography, including a lot of... What a band to be stranded on a desert island with, right? I mean, Uh, they could help Sea Power. They come on the sea. Um, Yeah. And yeah, I think if if it was with a band to hang out with, I think me and the Beastie Boys could party it up. (laughs) We'll just get completely trashed. (laughs) That's amazing, because... If I was stranded on a desert island with the Beastie Boys, the first thing I would do is say, guys, can you please teach me the lyrics to your songs because I can't make out anything you say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I can, like, I, can make yeah. out, I can make out intergalactic. I can make out fight for your right to party. And then after that, it's just people shouting. And I know that makes me feel... I sound really, really old, but I just I, you know, just talk me through it because I, I, think I know I'd, you put I'd, a lot I'd of thought them, into your lyrics. I'd, I'd make them let me be one of the one of the three members, so like one of them can take a break, you know, take a day off, and I can just be the guy at the back, <laughs> like saying saying the other word after everybody else, like yeah. See, that is an easy gig, isn't it? Yeah, I'd be up with that. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> the Beatles would be interesting. Like, which era would you want? Because you wouldn't want them to be too combative. You wouldn't want them to be at each other's throats. You wouldn't want like Paul to have to go. Hey guys, you know it's your turn to do the uh, SOS thing today, and then John go fuck off, Paul McCartney, you bastard, and then and then they're at each other's throats, and oh, you don't want that at all, do you? 
Yeah, I mean, meditating years, as I said, when they hang out with the Marrakesh or whatever his name was, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, literally just chilled as fuck. They're not born. They're kind of literally, so one of them's got a sitar and, you know, they'll all, all be fine. Okay? And with the okay, BC yeah. boys, all you need to know is, kick it! <laughs> we have to build a door on the island just so we can kick it in yeah, yeah. literally just build a door for the fight to recreate the fight for your right uh, to party video you can just kick just in obsessively recreate day. the set yeah amazing okay. uh, interesting no one said cow catcher who is this band it's a band from the film the um the evil band oh right they're the they're the other band are they yeah that's the band that I'm not sure whether he's a front man or not but worm the terrifying yes. bloke who is one of the scariest villains of the last what, 20 years on screen. Just that, that moment where he turns around and goes, hey, what was that song you played? The second to last song, Toxic Evolution. I like that song. I did her to that song. It's like, oh my God, he's terrifying. Uh, and why don't they just leave that guy to take care of the situation? Because <laughs> again, the age <laughs> yeah. range would be dead within five minutes. And he's passing through. See, when you yeah. first said that, I thought that because I'd forgotten that the Nazi punks fuck off was the first song. I thought he was saying that as in, what's that? So what was the name of that song you played? In a thing of, he knows that's the name. I wanted them to say it's Nazi punks fuck off, and then he attacks them because they all goes mental. Uh, but obviously that's not... But I'm a Nazi punk. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. No one wait. ever thinks about my feelings when you tell me to fuck off. <laughs> or he didn't even realise that was the name, so he genuinely really, he was raving out to it, and then he's like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, what do you fucking say to me? <laughs> it's, it's the Beastie Boys saying, he's going, I don't understand what they're saying, but I like the vibe. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Let's talk about the dog. <laughs> like uh, yeah, this important, important character. There's a there's a dog in this film, and literally in the last like, half hour of the film, it keeps cutting back to that fucking dog uh, walking. It's like a killer, like ferocious tap dog. Yeah. Uh, who actually? Well, does... I wrote down, you know, is is this Chekhov's dog? And then I was like, Chekhov. I mean, this dog actually literally kills two of the characters. It kills Tiger and it kills Ali Shawcat's character as well. Um, so you really do feel like this is, you know, fucking dangerous. They they killed by this point. They've killed its owner, and you think, oh right, okay, it's coming to get them. Like when you originally mm. saw this film, did you believe the dog was suddenly going to leap out as a last minute thing and just rip Anton Yelchin's throat out? Well, they kind of very much show, you know, him pottering about, like you say, towards the end. And I think this, you know, film goes away to show that, you know, a dog can't be a Nazi. He can be, he can be trained to be <laughs> bad. But at, at the end, he's, you know, he's mourning his owner and it makes him good again. And I'm glad they didn't have to, like, you know, shotgun a dog in the face in the last few minutes. Because that might take away a little bit of sympathy for our, for our heroes right at the end. Even if he did kill their friends. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very much Nazi dogs fuck off. <laughs> Not I love dogs. dogs. Fuck off. Is the uh, yeah yeah exactly, but the way it builds that tension of this dog is coming towards you, you really think something's going to happen with that dog, and then it just kind of it, it's nothing. And again, it's sort of that deliberate anticlimactic undercutting that Saulnier does in both this and Blue Ruin, where Blue Ruin builds this big kind of showdown uh, crescendo, and then in the end ends in a sort of as peaceful way as it kind of possibly mm. can in that story as well. And so I think that's definitely kind of a thing he does. So Great. have we got 
anything else we want to talk about before we move on to final thoughts of the film? I think we've we've covered most things. I would say, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the Tad's um, involvement in the whole business. Uh, I, I like Big Justin. Uh, I should I should point out as well. He's played by Eric Edelstein, who's very very good on Twitter, and he is uh, he's well he's in a number of things, but he came to my attention. 2015 was a big year for him because he had this and he also had Jurassic World where he is one of the park workers who is killed by the the giant mutated T-Rex that they have. Oh, yeah, uh, he gets eaten, right? Straight off the ground. He does. That guy. He, mm. he does. Uh, so he's he's uh, well worth a follow on Twitter as well. So shout out to Eric Edelstein. Oh, yeah. And I mean, the bit where he just gets sliced up in the middle is fucking horrible. Like, I literally... Oh, it's hardcore. Like, gasped when it happened even i mean that's how you know when a film is really working on the second time you watch it you're still reacting as if it's the first time yeah and i think when the dog leapt ali a shortcut i went oh shit no like uh, yeah, really kind of like <laughs> yeah. getting into it it's that thing and what's so sad is because i wanted one thing i did want to talk about which we haven't talked about much is amber imogen poots yes um who obviously she's kind of basically becomes the the fifth beetle of the of the band essentially in this movie and you know she's this outsider character who ends up kind of affiliated with them literally just because not particularly because maybe she's a good person, but just because she ends up on their side because they are both in danger from the evil Nazis. Because what's quite interesting with our characters, they never really make a... Because they do point out she is she is one of them, a, a racist kind of Nazi punk. She actually... There's a kind of little moment where they kind of try and question her on why she's hanging around with these guys and she has a line where she says it wasn't white people who hurt me so i don't know if it's meant to be a kind of reference to potentially maybe she was right or something like that and she's very young and maybe became inveigled with these guys and i think she's young enough that it's meant to show that she could potentially be turned to the side of good and you know she's just kind of been pulled in and brainwashed by these kind of idiots uh, that she's surrounded by but they never really make a big point of that it just is she is who she is and because of the fact that she ends up fighting on the side of right in this film we side with her instantly despite the fact that her background may not may not be great mm. and what i thought at the end of the film was obviously anton yelchin's pat is alone essentially all his bandmates are dead and he's kind of left with amber at the end and it's that weird thing where at the end of it he says oh i've got my desert iron band because it's a, to him, it's a big thing because all of his mates are very invested in music and everything like that. And although yeah. Imogen Poots' character does give an answer for Desert Island Band, she's obviously not a band member. She's not as deeply inveigled in Sky Music as he is. And when he reveals, I've got my Desert Island Band, she turns around to him and says, tell someone who gives a shit. And I actually felt really sorry for Pat in that moment because it's like he's lost all his mates. He's lost the guys who turn around and they'd actually care and go, oh yeah, great, what is it? Going like you know, and he's like left with her, someone who doesn't kind of share his interests, as it were. He's not going to start a new band with Amber, basically. 
That's a really good point. She's a great unknown, isn't she? You know, we're introduced to her very late in the film. We don't know anything about her, really. We don't know anything about her background, whereas we do feel we know the ain't rights, even though we spend not that long with them, really, in the grand scheme of things. And yes, you never quite know which way she's going to go. But she has this very, very Morton sense of humour. She's able to cut through all the bullshit and all the horse shit. She kind of ends up being the most efficient of all of them in a lot of ways, because she kind of saves the Elchin's ass, like, multiple times, really. She does end up being pretty proficient, pretty smart, with the way she's, like, counting bullets and kind of, like, yeah, sneaking yeah. She's up not questioning over, like, what to do or how hard to go on no, the surviving. No. I mean, it's kind of what Anton uh, needed, I think, uh, as a... You know, if it was just him and one of his other bandmates left, they might not have gotten out as, as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's really interesting to see who kind of ends up being the mm. kind of the final boy and girl of this kind of piece because uh, you kind of assume that essentially she might be the damsel in distress in a way and Yelchin be the hero but it's not really like that it's kind of the other way around yeah absolutely so I'm going to do my usual thing of framing the Star Trek connections with this film in their career and what was going on at the time so Anton Yelchin this was released in 2015 and he was a busy boy back in 2015. And he, he was most of the time. I mean, we talk about Anton Yelchin. You were saying, Chris, how you don't just instantly think of Chekhov when you think of Anton Yelchin. I think that's because he was a proper character actor. Like, you know, in terms yep. of Chekhov was just one of his many varied roles. And I would say out of all the actors who kind of you know, make up the spotlight of the movies list, I'd say he's probably, possibly got more films on there than anyone, just because he made so many interesting choices throughout his career. Mm -hmm. And in this year, in particular, he had Experimenter, which is the film about the Milgram tests in the 60s, where they kind of would tell someone, you have to give this person an electric shock, because it it was testing that thing of authority over someone in terms of if you tell someone to give another person electric shot, you will do it because you're being told to do it. The man, he seems to be getting hurt. There is no permanent tissue damage. Yes, but I know what shocks do to you. I'm an electrical engineer. And I have had shocks. You get real shook up by them. Especially if you know the next one is coming. I'm sorry. It's absolutely essential that you do continue. Well, I won't. Not with the man screaming to get out. You have no other choice. Why don't I have a choice? I came here on my own free will. I thought I could help in a research project. But if I have to hurt somebody, if I was in his place, no. Can't continue. I've probably gone too far already. I'm very sorry. He was also in two shorts in 2015. A short called Kiss Kiss Finger Bang. (laughs) And also uh, Court of Conscience, which, coincidentally enough, he starred in alongside John Voight. So there you go. Brings it back to the deliverance collection where he is the Voight of this film. Uh, another film I haven't heard of called Broken Horses. Another one called The Drifters Area. I don't think I haven't heard of either of them. But he, you know, was working plenty alongside this. Yeah, he um, was just so thing. so pro- uh, pro- prolific. Um, and I did manage to catch that doc about him, Love Antosha, which oh is, yeah, 
which is most definitely very heartbreaking, but they, they frame it very much as a celebration of his life. And you see from the moment he was a young boy how creative he was, whether whether it be like music, acting, filmmaking. Mm. Um, he was doing it all. And I think, you know, right up until the end, he was he was filling his CV with with interesting roles for interesting people. And yeah, this is one of the last kind of, you know, theatrically released uh, films he had. I think I think the only ones afterwards really were things like Thoroughbreds and Star Trek Beyond, which I think are both 2016, which was the year he passed. Everybody, raise a glass to Captain James T. Kirk. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, everybody. To the Enterprise. To the Enterprise. And to absent friends. Here's to that. Cheers. Cheers. With Peace Chew. The other things he was doing back in 2015 was narrating Ted 2 uh, and also... Uh, what range? <laughs> and also, of course, Matt, you will know this, starring in Christmas classic, Christmas oh, no. Eve. Uh, which was that have, 2015? That's 2015, baby. And we have It's also, like 2006 in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've covered that film on this podcast. Uh, it was our 2019 Christmas special, was Christmas Eve, starring Patrick Stewart. Have you seen this film, Chris? I haven't, if I'm honest. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll cue it up immediately after Star Trek V. Uh, I mean, Jesus Christ. It's a faith-based Christmas film. Essentially, you know those films that the uh, Pretty Woman director did, like Valentine's Day, New Year's Day, all those kind of movies. It's very much that but Christmas Eve and faith-based. So it's lots and lots and lots of different people trapped in various lifts across the city uh, when there's a power cut, all kind of, you know, coming to a moment of self-discovery. It's a siege movie. usually involves God <laughs> in some way. Um, and Patrick Stewart plays an Alan Sugar-esque character uh, who's kind of disconnected from his son and stuff like that. He's very much like the Scrooge of the piece. And he's doing a, a kind of a London, really London kind of Cockney accent in it. Um, oh, and oh, it is abysmal. One of, the, <laughs> one of the worst films I've ever seen. I mean, in absolutely my just time. listen to our episode on it instead. Of <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. It. Go back. For the love of God. Amazing. <laughs> Uh, funny enough, that's one of my one of our favourite episodes that uh, we, we've done for me certainly. Kind of thing, but it is a terrible, insane terrible movie. Film. It's probably the worst film we've covered <laughs> on the podcast. I mean, almost definitely the worst. Film. I think also it was the worst film we'd ever seen. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> so there you go. That's something to look forward to. Slap that on at Christmas. It will definitely be on Netflix or Amazon Prime. It is like every year it crops up on one of those. So there you go. I will, uh, I, I swear, I will check it out. A treat in store. So, final thoughts and star rating, please, Chris. You are allowed to do half stars. You're not constricted by the Nazi star rules over at Empire. Here, you can give us half stars, just like the good old days of film review over here. Yeah. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah. Nazi star rating punks, fuck off. <laughs> Doesn't quite scan, does it? Uh, I really like this film. I think that it is... It may not be quite five stars for me, but, you know, if we're going to go half stars, I'll go four and a half. Okay, okay, yeah. I would also agree with four and a half stars. Yeah, I think it is really, really great film. Um, I also give four and a half stars to Blue Ruin, uh, but I slightly prefer Blue Ruin to this. 
just because I think this is an incredibly well done siege movie in the style of things like Assault on Precinct 13 um, and stuff like that. I think it's, it's really, really brilliant. One thing we didn't mention um, is the absolutely gorgeous cinematography by Sean Porter, who does mm. a, a fantastic job of capturing this kind of 80s, grimy, grungy, neon exploitation aesthetic, which I really, really love. He's a really good DOP. He also did the cinematography for The Trust, the Nicolas Cage, Elijah Wood film, which is actually a bit of a hidden Cage gem. I actually went on the Caged In podcast to talk about The Trust, uh, which I believe mm-hmm. you've also been on before, Chris, to talk about mm-hmm. Kick-Ass. Um, and so that is definitely well worth checking out. And he also, he loves the colour green because he also is the DOP of Green Book as well. But I can't remember <laughs> that looking as nice as this film. So yeah, good shout out <laughs> to the cinematography in the movie. Yeah, I think it's a great flick. Four and a half stars. Uh, I wasn't as big a fan of Hold the Dark, the kind of film he did after this, to be completely yeah. honest. He's got a new one coming, which I think has all been made and is in post-production. So I, I'm hoping for him to kind of come back strong. Back. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm with you guys. I really love this movie. I think, you know, it does a very specific thing about as well as you can do it, I think. I do also marginally prefer Blue Ruin, like, by a hair. So if that's a four and a half, this is, like, the highest of fours. Although, you know, if I'm honest, I think after more repeat viewings, it will bump up as well. It's fantastic. You know, it's it's a film about truly entering the lion's den and being immediately absolutely fucked and uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's not many films that that get across that level of desperate dread and and tension as well as this of what it's like to be fucked by a lion <laughs> <laughs> in their den oh god <laughs> matt one thing i wanted to talk about before we go is yes. you are the host of many podcasts now you are now Indeed. matt Three podcast brothers. Uh, this is why Chris is trying to catch up with you by trying to take over Paul's position on Spotlight. Uh, you also host Sun Double D, the uh, Triple Bill title podcast. I do uh, indeed. Can you explain what happens on that podcast and what you're doing yeah, at the moment? Yeah, so that is the Triple Bill, Triple Title Bill Word Show, where we watch three films linked by a word in the title. So a recent one we did was um, Young where we were joined by M from Verbal Diorama, and we did uh, Mighty Joe Young, The Young Victoria, and Promising Young Woman. So we try and cover films, if we can, from different decades, covering different genres, different countries as well. Um, and I do that with Daryl and Jeanette over at, yeah, Sun Double Deep Towers. It's a weekly show, essentially. We get one triple bill episode and followed up by a sort of bonus the following week. And there's a Patreon as well where we do a music-based spin-off show within the show called Deep Cuts, where we look at soundtrack scores and theme songs. Are you going to do Green Room and Nazi Punks Fuck Off? Well, that would be a fun one to do for Deep Cuts, yeah. But I'm thinking as well, Green and Room as words. Room, you could do Green Room, the room. room, and The Room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Green... Green Inferno, Green Hornet, Green Room, so we don't have to do Green Book. That could work. Yeah, yeah, it could. It could. It could. That's good. That is a brilliant podcast, Sun Double D. Genuinely one of my favourite podcasts, whether even though it's hosted by one of my best mates and my co-host, like, he's also genuinely <laughs> one of my favourite podcasts. It was before 
you became a host on it, Matt. And obviously, I know Darren and Jeanette as well. But I was a favourite before I knew them as well. So there you go. And you have a reasonably new podcast, which Chris, I believe, is going to be a guest on soon. And you are now, Chris, if you didn't know it already. <laughs> is Plano okay? And what is that about? Absolutely. So we've got, you know, many friends with podcasts, of course, and we've already mentioned Caged In, the great Nicolas Cage filmography show from Petros. Um, and me and Daryl at one point last year in lockdown were like, you know, if we were going to do a filmography actor show, who has a really eclectic uh, filmography list and what could be an angle? And we were watching something at the time and probably watching Paul Dano getting his face beaten in. And we thought, this happens a lot with this guy. Does it happen all the time? Let's find out. So we've been breaking down... Mr. Paul Dano, Paul Dano, his filmography from the very start, mixing up films in in sort of seasonal batches. So we come out with episodes, uh, eight episode batches, and we've just finished season two, um, which capped off with the wonderful Prisoners. Definitely one of the best movies he's in, and definitely the swellingest his face gets, uh, his biggest face gets, <laughs> from the amount of punishment he takes from Hugh Jackman himself, Hugh Jackman. Mm. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so we're prepping season three right now, and we've got lots of more fun stuff to come. And Chris, what film are you going to be covering on said podcast? I believe we're going to be covering There Will Be Blood. Absolutely. Which is one of the key texts in the Book of Dano. So, mm-hmm. yeah, very excited about that one. Love and Mercy just popped into my head and I'd quite like to do that. But no, we're doing we're doing There Will Be Blood. Uh, he doesn't really get pummeled in Love and Mercy, not physically anyway. Yeah, no, that's it. Tracking, tracking physical yeah. punishment, emotional yeah. abuse, spiritual degradation yes. he goes through a lot and they'll be yes. like, definitely high on the physical battery there's a, there's a there's a famous <laughs> there's a famous pummeling uh in that movie so yeah gives them right good fucking slapping down in that doesn't he yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. like uh <laughs> no i rewatched it recently it's it's good it's good stuff it's good stuff that there will be blood it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it because i've only seen it once so uh oh, it'll be interesting to revisit it cool awesome well we look forward to that Chris, where can we find you online and in other podcast areas? Uh, yeah, I well, I'll, I'll tend to flit around from podcast to podcast. Uh, uh, anyone, I just flash my knickers at any podcast, even podcasts that don't know that I'm on. Whatever your favorite podcast is, whether it's you know WTF with Mark Maron, if you listen really closely, I'm in the background going, "I'm here, I'm here." <laughs> yes, hey, everybody. Uh, so just listen, you know, listen really, really carefully. I'll be on the podcast now. Um, uh, the regular podcast I do is the Empire Podcast, uh, and we have a couple of iterations of that, a couple of variations of that. Uh, I'm not going to say variants because it's a bad word these days. But we have the regular Empire Podcast, which is free. <laughs> you make, but why? Why is he making that distinction? I'll tell you in a second. And it's free, and it's out every Friday. And we have guests, and we talk about films, and we you know, look at film news, and we review films, and we just generally have a bit of a old chit chat. And uh, so, yeah, you can listen to that every single Friday. And we also have a spoiler special subscription channel, which is paid for. And if you go into my Twitter at Chris Hewitt, you can find details of how to subscribe. And on there, you have uh, spoiler special podcasts dedicated to breaking down pretty much every major release certainly in the pandemic we've stepped it up an awful lot as well so every major uh, blockbuster release every major indie release with interviews with the directors as well so that is well worth your 2.99 a month shilling ends well i can actually say that it is worth the 2.99 a month because 
I signed up a couple of months ago myself to the spoiler special uh, Holy Empire, hell. Uh, podcast. Yeah, and uh, I kind of signed up specifically for the Jack Reacher spoiler special and the <laughs> Line of Duty, because uh, you also got Pilot TV podcast cast spoiler yes. specials on there as well. And there was a Line mm-hmm. of Duty kind of breakdown um, of the latest season. And I signed up for those and kind of uh, digested those, but I've stayed on it because there's lots and lots of really good kind of content on there. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's really, really great stuff. I mean, obviously the Jack Reacher one, your kind of podcast with Chris McQuarrie have become sort of legendary um, in their own way in terms of these really long, exhaustive uh, kind of breakdowns of kind of his films. He's a great person mm-hmm. to clearly chat yeah. to about kind of yeah. film and how it's made. And we expect a 12-hour yeah. edition for Mission 7 and 8. <laughs> he has, he has threatened that uh, in, in the past so fingers crossed whenever they finish Mission 7 because uh, it's, it's still going on I think they've now hit a year um, because of the pandemic and everything it's been really really tricky but uh, yeah fingers crossed that uh, Mission 7 will come out uh, next year as planned and that we can actually get in the same room to have a yeah, chat oh so I do not want to be talking to someone for 12 hours or over Zoom but uh, we'll see how we can navigate that but in case people don't know what we're talking about uh, if you do subscribe to our spoiler special channel um you you know there's all sorts of stuff on there that we're talking you know interviews with the Russo brothers on endgame loads of marvel stuff taika waititi you know we've got uh, ryan cooker on black panther jordan peele on us quentin tarantino once upon a time in hollywood sam mendez on specter in 1917 edgar wright on a bunch of his movies as well and probably the the, the centerpiece of it all are the epic interviews that i i do with uh, chris mcquarrie uh, about the Mission Impossible movies. We did three hours on Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and then we doubled that. I'm not kidding. We doubled that uh, for Mission Impossible Fallout. And we were talking about doubling it again for Mission 7. And they've, you know, they've racked up enough incident on during filming to talk for 12 hours, I think. Uh, so that is all there you know, awaiting you, should you want to wade into our subscription waters. Yeah, so part of the first podcast will just be about Cruz's uh, blow-up on set. But literally, I was going to say, actually, because the, the Fallout podcast what, or podcasts uh, were genuinely absolutely amazing. Like those podcasts, I'd say, like I hold those up as like some of the best kind of film podcasting that has been done. Those Fallout podcasts, like in terms of anyone who like, you know, obviously... Matt did a screenwriting degree, I did a film production degree, and anyone who's kind of, mm. you know, totally invested in that kind of filmmaking process, it's like catnip to you completely. <laughs> and one thing I was going to say was, obviously, there are five Mission Impossible films on the Spotlight of the Movies list. So everything but number one, it's number one didn't have anything to do with any Star Trek people. But obviously, three, four, five, and six all have Simon Pegg in them. And two is written by two of like two big Star Trek writers. So uh, I was interested. I in my head, I just assumed you might pick a Mission Impossible film, but were you just too exhausted from talking about them on those <laughs> other podcasts? I don't know. It maybe feels a bit like uh, cheating on the uh, Emperor podcast a little bit. Who, who knows? They're saving that stuff right. for. Uh, for I don't, I don't know it, it didn't really occur to me I wanted to do something that was a little bit off the beaten path I, I can't remember what the third film was maybe it was Mission Impossible Fallout I could talk for another five hours about that one but yeah, yeah. it's interesting no I don't I don't 
that, there's no one from Mission Impossible at all who's connected to Star Wars, Star Trek. Oh, wow. well, there might be someone. There probably there's there's probably someone who's appeared in it, but basically we've got like strict rules when it comes to spotlight the movies, Chris. Because uh, uh, because mm-hmm. Star Trek is such a huge franchise that basically if you just said, oh, you just have to have had like you know a two second cameo in a Star Trek episode, basically you could probably cover every film that ever existed. Like, you know, in order, in order that route. So we kind of have to say it's someone with a major connection. So you're talking a regular cast member. So, you know, you're Patrick Stewart, you're on Yelchin, kind of like, you know, those kind of people. Or someone who was like, you know, one of the main writers on like a show or like the showrunner, someone like Ronald D. Moore, or so who is one of the screenwriters of Mission Impossible 2, I believe, along with Brandon Bragger, along with, um, I think, Robert Town. Robert Town. I think is in yeah. it at one point, didn't they? Yeah. You could do a, a Mission Impossible 2 spoiler special, Chris, with uh, Robert Town. Well, we could, I guess. Um, we could maybe reach out to John Woo. Who know? Who knows? Who knows what we might do down the line? But uh, yeah, you're right. We haven't done uh, spoiler specials for first four missions, so maybe that's my mission in life. But then that's what the Light Fuse podcast is for, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> also. yeah, that's very, yes, very true. Very good podcast that as well, hundred percent. But yeah, no, I do recommend the uh, spoiler specials. Uh, they're really, really, really great. And yeah, I stayed uh, signed up after I kind of listened to the ones that I specifically signed up for because there's some really, really good stuff on there. And I believe you've got a few coming up, like nobody. You've got a nobody one coming up, haven't you? Yeah, we've got loads coming up. We have, um, and this is where I try to remember them, but we have uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings with uh, Destin Daniel Cretton. Uh, we have Candyman with director Nia DaCosta. We have Nobody coming up as well we have freaky which is going to coincide with that film's uh, home entertainment release uh in october uh we have tons and tons and tons and we're adding new ones every single week so yeah it's it's really busy uh but it's it's fantastic just the, the deep dive so it's not just interviews with the directors or the writers uh uh, or in the case of Ryan Reynolds for Deadpool, uh, the star, it's us, Team Empire, uh, sitting around and having a good old natter. So if, you, if you've enjoyed this good old natter, then you think, oh, I want more of that, then then check it out as well. And if you want to be able to find me on social media, not in real life, obviously, <laughs> then I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, sir. Um, so, yeah, now it's been another uh, great episode of Spotlight, and we will be back with another episode exploring some aspect of the Star Trek universe. Who knows where we will go next, but we do have uh, some cool plans coming up, including getting back to in-person recordings, uh, which we are extremely excited about. We have not recorded together. If it was that uh, easy. (laughs) Yeah, we have not recorded together in a room since March 2020. And literally the last time was, bizarrely enough, at the Empire Magazine podcast studios with James Dyer on March 6, 2020, I think. Um, wow. Literally, that, that's, that's when it was. That's the last time we were in a room together for, for podcast recording. I've, I've seen Matt since, but that's the last time we actually recorded in a room together. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's less fun, eh? 
Yeah, exactly. He's like, letters on my That's old news. Uh, what's, the, what's the fucking point? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we will be back. Until next time, live long and prosper, people. Live long and prosper.